The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good morning, everybody, and a very warm welcome to today's event on the cultural and literary legacies of partition. My name is Kieran O'Neill, and I'm Deputy Director of Trinity Longroom Hub, Trinity's flagship arts and humanities research institute. The partition of Ireland, now a century old fact, is nevertheless an idea without much of a history on the island. For much of the 19th century, partition was something that those loyal to the Union and to the crown warned against as a Rome-inspired plot to divide an imagined disloyal South from the more reliably loyal North. Calls for partition only really became a feature of Irish political discourse as the Home Rule movement gathered pace in the mid-1880s. Comparative and interdisciplinary approaches to this problem can help us understand what happened in Ireland in its broader context and indeed how its division helped to model later partitions. It was, of course, violence, conflict, and political opportunity that created a border in the island of Ireland in the 1920s, and ideas of its historical inevitability have been contested in this centenary period, just as ideas of its future are a matter of heated public debate. Today we gather to discuss that process and to think of the Irish identities that were emboldened, suppressed, or simply ignored in the new reality ushered in by partition. This morning's event is the first half of a joint symposium with Queen's University Belfast, and I would like to express our warmest thanks to the team at Queen's and particularly Professor Richard English for working with us on this special collaborative event. The symposium consists of two panels. The first from Trinity College Dublin will discuss the cultural and literary legacies of partition. The second, coming from Queen's University Belfast, will cover the political and social consequences of partition. And in this first panel, I am joined by three colleagues, each of whom will speak for 10 minutes and in the order that I will introduce them. The event is being streamed live on Facebook and thus will be recorded. If audience members would like to ask a question, and we very much encourage you to do so, then please do use the Q&A panel at the bottom of your screen. Our first speaker today will be Dr. Stephen O'Neill, who is, fittingly, a graduate of both Queen's and Trinity, where he completed his PhD in 2018. More recently, he was the NEH Fellow at the University of Notre Dame's Keonocton Institute for Irish Studies in 2019-20, and he has since spent periods as a fellow with us here at Trinity Longroom Hub and as a visiting researcher at Queen's School of Irish Studies. Stephen's much anticipated monograph is forthcoming with Liverpool University Press and it's entitled Irish Culture and Partition 1920 to 1955 and it's on that topic that he will speak today. Stephen's work overlaps to some degree with that of our second speaker Dr Guy Woodward whose highly regarded 2015 monograph with Oxford University Press was entitled Culture, Northern Ireland and the Second World War, 
Guy was a doctoral and postdoctoral researcher here at Trinity, and he's currently a postdoc at the Department of English Studies, Durham University. He will speak today to the topic of border crossings in Irish wartime writing. Our third and final speaker today will be Professor Eve Patton, who is, of course, director of Trinity Long Room Hub here at Trinity College Dublin. A scholar with a profound interest in both the history and literature of modern Ireland across two centuries, her recent publications include as editor, Irish Literature in Transition, 1940 to 1980, Cambridge University Press in 2020, and the forthcoming monograph with Oxford University Press entitled Ireland, Revolution, and the English Modernist Imagination. Today, Eve will discuss depictions of the Irish border in English film and literature. So we have three fabulously credentialed speakers for us this morning. I'm gonna hand over to the first of them, to Stephen. Thanks very much, Kieran, for that, that generous introduction. And thank you to the Hub, um, to Eve, uh, Francesca, Aoife, and everyone else um, for letting me speak today. And of course, the Queens for organizing the concurrent event. So as Kieran sort of outlined, uh, my current sort of research is on the idea of Irish culture and partition. So I'm very fortunate uh, that this has been organized today and I'm uh, very happy to speak to you about this. And I'll speak for about 10 minutes really about the um, ways in which partition has been read and maybe why that has been a dominant way of reading uh, for a long time. And maybe try and challenge some of those assumptions a bit uh, as Kieran's very um, sort of uh, suggestive sketch at the start and give some sort of introduction to. Um, so I just want to start with a, a quote from someone called uh, FSL Lyons, uh, appropriately a provost of Trinity. I don't think he was speaking ex cathedra at this time. Uh, he was speaking as an historian, but he was someone who um, engaged quite, uh, sorry, I'll just put that up, um, engaged quite um, extensively with the culture of Ireland as it uh, was affected in uh, the period since Home Rule. And this was mostly in his 1979 Culture and Anarchy in Ireland, um, when he offered to his reader what he considered a fresh analysis of the partition of Ireland, in which he said the most important consequence of the 1921 settlement was that by concentrating attention on physical boundaries and questions of political sovereignty, it postponed almost till our own day any serious consideration of the cultural differences that underlay the partition of the country. In reframing culture as the reason beneath partition or behind partition, Lyons claimed to be undoing what he considered as long-standing cliches about the Irish question being an ancient struggle rooted in politics and territory, and instead here claiming that Ireland's division was a result of these deep-lying cultural differences. The serious consideration which Lyons called for was also in some ways echoing the words of the Queen's University historian J.C. Beckett, who had earlier claimed that the real partition of Ireland is not on the map, but in the minds of men. Here in the last sentence of his 1951 short history of Ireland, Beckett reframed partition not as a cause, but a symptom of what he termed the um, age old problem. Described, um, sorry. Oh, sorry, I got a bit lost there. Um, described, uh, as very important differences in outlook between two groups of people. So these interpretations have been particularly influential in explaining partitions since at least the 1980s, being quoted by various book-length studies of Irish history, Irish culture, and Irish politics. They were even taken up as a central platform in, uh, in, in the peace process by those such as John Hume, whose thinking about partition was heavily reliant on Beckett, even for its phrasing. Here um, and elsewhere, Lyons and Beckett 
offered eloquent and succinct analysis of partition that set a template for future historians to follow. But the supposed innovation of this template was a misleading impression since both adopted a dominant way of reading partition in Irish culture, which it adhered since 1920. So rather than the deep engagement which Lyons called for, there was a certain obliviousness here to like the Northern culture of the 1920s itself, particularly as the six counties were reinvented as an historically homogenous entity. This reinvention of tradition was undertaken in a period of chaos and violence, as well as a boundary commission which made the construction of an Ulster identity even more contingent. Apologies, Stephen, I'm just going to interrupt you because we're not seeing your slides at the moment and I'm oh, actually, no, we're not that mentioned. Was, that was purposeful, but I'll put them up anyway, sorry. Um, no, that's fine, sorry, I just wasn't sure, apologies. Uh, two seconds, sorry. Uh, can you see them now? They're just a bit small, Stephen. Okay. Uh, sorry about this. So they're just small. Can you see? Can you see them? Is that working now at all? They're just a bit. I think they're just a bit too small for people to see properly. Maybe. Okay. Sorry. Let me... If you could bring up the size, if you could magnify in, they're probably just a little bit low on the percentage. Or if you don't need them. I'll, I'll try and come back to them anyway. Okay. Um, if I can a bit. Sorry about that. Um, so. These articulations of Irish and Ulster identity that emerged in these years were heavily inflected with the language of mapping, boundary drawing and territorialization with regards to history and culture. And these representations amounted in microcosm to what Edward Said termed a distinct cultural topography, the way in which structures of location and geographical reference appear in the cultural language of literature and history, sometimes elusively and sometimes carefully plotted across several individual works that are not otherwise connected to each other. While Saeed was referring to a longer and much more expansive history of imperial Western culture, in which Ireland had of course played uh, some significant role, what he termed an astonishing frequency of geographical articulations in these Western imperial cultures was also found and were also found in the projection of state identities on the island from 1921 to 1925. In these years, the map of Ireland became a weapon in the Irish question used to construct cultural and intellectual fence posts that would justify claims towards particular territories. The map was at once proof of these cultural differences and a prop for ways of reading culture in Ireland. So today what I want to recenter is how there was a reconfiguration of Irish culture to the template of the six countries by using the map, to county, sorry, by using the map as a guide, as an icon, as a structuring principle. Um, and this is particularly true, I think, for Northern Unionist culture, but could also be said to be true for Southern culture from the 1920s. These images and reconfigurations gave the impression that the Northern state was coterminous with the historic province of Ulster that the border was ratified by centuries of history and culture, and that it emerged as like almost entirely as an act of self-determination uh, by an homogenous entity, rather than being a solution dreamt up really by sort of civil servants in Whitehall. Um, and so I will need the, the slide for this, so I'll try and get it up now. Is that showing now? Is that fine? It's just, it, it would just be a little bit small. If you're able just to zoom in a little bit, it's only a bit up. It's just at 53% on the Zoom settings. So maybe if you just could bring it up a little bit in size. Is that better? 53% Zoom settings, sorry, excuse me. Sorry about this. Um, I think I might have to just go, go ahead with it, that's okay. Um, I don't think it'll be too difficult. Um, sure. Absolutely. So sorry, sorry if it's too small, but I don't that's think- That's perfect. That's fine, okay. Um, so is that it? That's, you can at least see some of that, is that okay? That's absolutely perfect, thank, thank you. Thank you and apologies for that everyone. So the map of Ulster have been increasingly used as a prop for political rhetoric in the years anticipating the onset of partition. 
It is prominently placed, for example, in 16th century histories like Ernest Hamilton's Elizabethan Ulster, published in 1919, in which the early 20th century boundaries of the province are included rather than the historical ones. In the same year, Herbert uh, Murpin's Unconquerable Ulster claimed that the fact is that Ireland never was a nation, but that Ulster very distinctly was a nation. In his prolonged description of cultural differences, Pym's analysis plainly relied, I think, upon acts of geographical fabrication. So when asking his reader to take an atlas and follow the line which I described, he claimed to have discovered a 12th century map of Ulster that was almost identical to that of the proposed Northern state. As he had glossed this map in the sort of last part of this quote, the six counties to, of today are as solid for the rights of Ulster as they were 700 years ago, nay, as they were 2000 years ago. So again, the kind of provisional uh, nature of this arrangement is being stressed by Pym, who had himself recently converted from an overzealous Irish nationalism to an overzealous Ulster unionism, and demonstrated that these things were changing in themselves minute by minute. I mean, he joins many others, such as like Sinjin Irvine, who had been nationalist uh, before the kind of First World War and then uh, rapidly changed to become a unionist sort of mouthpiece, really. But as Pym and Hamilton's text demonstrate, the map became a dominant feature of this emergent identity in the North, functioning almost as a birth certificate or document of identity for a new culture. But these articulations of differences in outlook, to go back to Beckett, gathered particular pace with the establishment of the Northern Government in 1921. So with this establishment and a response really to the threat of the Boundary Commission came the Ulster Association for Peace with Honour, which had been set up in April 1922 with James Craig as its honorary president. As the body's annual report for 1922-23 outlined, this was a time of great danger for the new state. It talks about how Ulster at that time and for some months subsequently was passing through a period of great anxiety and peril. And this anxiety was certainly heightened in the context of the Boundary Commission and the body's official organ, the Ulster Bulletin, offer responses, by, responses to the Boundary Commission and the Boundary Problem by ways of articles, reviews, and of course maps that were entered as evidence of this cultural distinctiveness that was in itself evidence of partition as a realistic solution. So on the left-hand side, you have the uh, second number in the, oh, sorry, the first number in the second volume of the Ulster Bulletin for November, 1923. And the first issue of the journal carries on its title page a message from James Craig claiming that there was a dangerous campaign of misrepresentation about the North. The readings of art and literature in the journal were mostly concerned with establishing the cultural differences between North and South and correcting received images of Belfast in particular as a place bereft of any cultural heritage. One review of William, William Connor's 1923 exhibition at the Goupil Gallery in London exemplified this recalibration of culture according to its political value, specifically in the context of partition and the boundary question. As uh, WBR says, uh, as is shown by the press comments on Connor's art, the new orientation of English sympathy does not yet include a realization that the North, obviously the North of Ireland, can be in introspective, full of deep feeling, and just as devotedly spiritual in its own way as the more romanticized and sentimentalized South and West. So this sort of repudiation of the perceived image of Belfast and Ulster speaks to a general ontological instability. I think with Connor's painting the launch here on the left, described by this piece as Belfast, Belfast pure and simple. Then again, in the next issue is the discussion of Ulster poetry. Another contributor quite plainly states that the Northerners are not so introspective as their Southern fellow countrymen, a trait which makes them closer to the Scotch. So this, I think, raises profound questions about the name and nature of what this new Ulster culture, culture is and was. 
Um, and which seems, I mean, at least here, to be something synonymous with unionism and whatever was sort of near at hand. But there are also deeper questions about what types of culture have historically been allowed to enter into analysis. In 1924 and 25, for example, both of the Irish partition states were invited to appear at the British Empire exhibition, which was then, and I'm certainly open to correction on this, um, the largest attended display of culture that the world had ever seen. As William Shorthall has shown, the Free State declined to appear on the basis that the name did not attract, the name of the Empire exhibition that is did not attract, um, whereas sort of Cosgrave sort of fought this off in, a, in the Times as being owing to the result really of the Civil War. But the Northern Government gladly contributed to villain strewn with the names of all six counties and foregrounded it with the image of the map as this new state, as an introduction to that new state. As the Boy Scouts parade on the right demonstrates, the need to reassert the cultural distinctiveness of Ulster was found throughout a range of activities at the exhibition, but it was also always shadowed by the potential encroachment of the Boundary Commission appearing as it did in 1924 and 1925, and was uh, far more a reflection really of the resulting insecurity about the identity of Ulster rather than I think any specifically located cultural difference. So just to go back to the first slide and go back to the idea of lions and this idea of, first of all, the 1921 settlement. And I'm, I'm speaking particularly given that it was suddenly, um, well, not, maybe not suddenly, but it was decided last week that the birth of the state was the 3rd of May. What I think is really interesting is none of this certainty is actually there at the start, either in regards to the start of the beginning of the state and the beginning of partition or in regards to what culture actually was. So. The idea of a settlement in 1921 is certainly something that I would question, but also I think what we should start doing is question these cultural differences as they are perceived uh, in the kind of wake of this um, Boundary Commission and the wake of this territorial dispute. It's an important thing, I think, to, um, to kind of unpack as well this idea that uh, it's a mental partition, that the real partition of Ireland is not in the map but in the minds of men, and important to kind of uh, try and challenge these perceptions about how culture is affected or by partition itself. The idea, for example, that cultural differences underlay the partition of the country is actually something I think that my work in particular, and I hope today we might discuss a bit, um, we might discuss about how partition did not necessarily uh, result from culture, but actually culture might in itself be changed profoundly by partition. Um, thank you very much for listening, and sorry about the slides. Great, thank you very much, Stephen. That was really interesting, and I'm going to go straight to you, Guy. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Great. Um, because we don't have um, so long today, I'm just going to focus on on one writer only, um, who is someone I've been researching quite a bit over the past few years, um, and that's the dramatist and journalist Dennis Johnston, um, who worked for the BBC during the Second World War, most famously as a war correspondent um, in North Africa, Italy, and Germany. And those are experiences which are the subject of uh, Nine Rivers from Jordan, which is um, a very long, um, quite experimental, um, cross-generic memoir. Um, it's out of print today, and, and it's really unjustly neglected, I think, as a result. Uh, but in the early years of the war, Johnston was placed in his native Dublin, uh, where the BBC had dispatched him to serve as Ireland correspondent. So he reported to listeners in Britain on a range of um, subjects. In the BBC Written Archive Centre, I found scripts of reports where he's describing the bombing of Dublin in 1941, 
um, and covering the arrival of um, US troops in the north in, in 1942, um, among many other, uh, many other reports. But according to his biographer, Bernard Adams, um, Johnson also had a covert brief uh, to try and draw the southern state into the war, or at least to foster pro-British sentiment, uh, by making programmes which would also appeal to southern listeners to the BBC, uh, and apparently specifically Irish Defence Forces personnel. So I think this is quite a complex um, brief requiring Johnson to speak to several national and regional audiences at once um, in Britain, uh, in the North, as well as the many listeners in the South who, who also tuned into the BBC during the war. Um, of course, due in part to the fact that um, radio air and broadcasts were, were heavily um, censored. So I think what we see here is something that's, that's evident across Europe during the war, that radio can't be um, confined to national boundaries, or at least kind of uh, questions where, where those lie. Um, the fact that transmissions can be picked up in unexpected places, I think, is very, is very productive. And that produces a paradox that I think is quite um, helpfully identified by Emily Bloom in her recent study of Irish writers at the BBC, The Wireless Past. And Bloom writes that, while radio often originates out of national institutions, and while broadcasting structures tend to stem from a nationalist ethos, in practice, they have the potential to mediate across national borders, revealing the fluidity, if not the arbitrariness of, the, of those borders, and to create transnational imagined publics. So in the, in the BBC archive, I found the text of a broadcast given by Johnston on the 21st of February, 1942, on the BBC home service. Uh, and this describes a nighttime train journey from Belfast to Dublin. Uh, it's entitled The Train to Era. Um, and this is how the broadcast opens. It's, it's, a, it's quite a long paragraph. I'm just going to read this to you. And then there are three issues I think it raises, which, which I want to unpack. So he, he opens like this. This train is interesting because it's one of the few trains left in Europe that crosses the peacetime political frontier. It's a crowded cosmopolitan sort of train carrying you from war to peace. That's the point from war to peace, full of all sorts of people speaking with a variety of accents and going on all sorts of errands. Commercial travellers writing up their books, race girls playing cards, British soldiers in uniform, men in mufflers and caps carrying parcels under their arms, women with loaves of bread half hidden under their coats. All very ordinary so far, except maybe for the bread carriers. But as you rattle over those points at Porter Down, a very polite middle-aged gentleman is pushing his way along the corridor looking the passengers over with an eye that takes in more than you imagine and getting them to produce any letters or papers they may be carrying. You see, this is the first hint you get of the rather unusual nature of the journey, of the fact you're coming up through the dark to a frontier line where the contents of your pocket may be of some importance. In fact, the whole thing begins to take on an air of politics and romance that plants you right back into a novel by John Buchan. So I think this opening raises a series of issues that, that um, might be of interest to our discussion today. Firstly, uh, the reference to smuggling and the arrival of the customs officer. Um, it's a passage which really highlights the material contrasts produced by the border 
during the war. Um, aspects, I think, that are really prominent, prominent in popular historiography um, of this period. Accounts of North and South at war often feature quite um, tall tales about smuggling, uh, but certainly note the differing shortages on each side. As Johnson goes on to observe, many items rationed in the North were plentiful in the South, eggs, bacon, for example, while many other items were readily available in the North, but scarce in the South, tea being the most famous example. Uh, but here we see bread being brought over the border due to flour shortages. I think these anecdotes um, are sometimes almost played for laughs or have a kind of surreal Flann O'Brienish quality. Um, there's a story somewhere about bottles of whiskey being smuggled across in the belly of a dead horse um, and another about a man smuggling bicycles um, across the border by riding them one way and, and walking back. But I think two decades after partition um, these kind of stories help to cement a kind of oppositional framework in which the North appears the opposite of the South um, and vice versa. And as I'm sure you, you, you noticed, the script features other polarities here, which, which really became a feature of wartime writing on Ireland. Um, darkness and light is one. Um, if you remember, Johnson's script describes the train coming up through the dark to the frontier. And he later reports that the train carriages blackout blinds are lifted after crossing the border. And of course, Dublin's wartime illumination is, is much noted in accounts of this period by travelers uh, from the north or, or from um, cities to, to Dublin's east. And Johnson also writes that the, the train carries passengers from war to peace. That's another incredibly stark polarity in his script, of course. Um, with Northern Ireland officially at war and the neutral southern state officially at peace, um, even though both had been bombed by the, the Luftwaffe the previous year. Um, I think we see here how the Second World War, um, even as it was happening, start, started to sort of mark a key period of divergence, um, which, um, which is observed by writers. Um, and then I guess reflected as well in, in, in the work of post-war historians who, who tend to agree, I think, that the central consequence of the war was, was the entrenchment of partition. The second point I want to note is Johnston's very deliberate reference at the beginning to the border as a European frontier. And that's something that rings a number of bells at present, of course. Um, I guess Brexit has required us to think about the border as a European frontier, where again, questions of trade um, and goods um, come to the fore. But what does it mean in 1942 to think about partition as a European border? Um, as Hubert Butler and, and, and others, others have noted, um, the border in Ireland was drawn at the same time as many others across the continent. Um, the free state comes into existence alongside many other European states. Um, just a sideline, but I, I discovered a few years ago that um, Stephen Talents, an English civil servant who drew the border between the new Baltic states of Estonia and Latvia, was sent straight from there in 1920 to Ireland, where he was involved in drawing, um, in drawing the border here. But partitions and their collapse were, of course, of, of pressing continental concern um, in the late 1930s and, and early 40s. I, I wrote in my 
um, book a few years ago about the ways in which the war kind of plugs um, political discourses in, in, in the North, both partitionist and anti-partitionist, into European contact, European context. There are all sorts of um, dubious parallels. I guess the most prominent would be um, the Czech example, um, which was deployed by both unionist and nationalist during the war. Very fresh in people's minds, of course, after 1938. Um, so there's a sense there, I think, that partition was being understood or, or weaponized at this time by some um, as a European frontier. But thirdly, and more speculatively, um, I'd like to mention something a bit less tangible, which relates to the style of Johnson's script. Um, and that's the presentation here of the border as a curiosity or an oddity, uh, an eccentricity. I think that's a feature um, and a very problematic feature about um, of writing about borders in many parts of the world. Uh, problematic since it minimizes um, mutes or avoids confronting the, the political and imperial context. And indeed, I think, can serve to replicate um, these. I think it's, it's a representation of the border enabled by the kind of suppressions of memory that um, Stephen discussed very well in his recent um, Irish Times piece. I think here in, in, in Johnson's script, it's partly explained by the broadcast's primary audience um, in Britain, and it, it certainly would have been a large audience um, at 6 p.m. On, on the home service on a Saturday evening. But I think it's also a feature of, of current, um, current reporting for British audiences. Um, We've probably all seen BBC or Sky or Channel 4 reports in which journalists walk across the border on a, on a country laneway somewhere and, and, and tell viewers, here I am in the Republic, here I am in the North. Um, and in those moments, I guess the border appears as something that's sort of something and nothing. It's the opportunity for performance, um, a sketch uh, and a scene in which viewers are told simultaneously, this is a huge problem. Um, but also this is nothing to worry about. And I think that's a framing that you also see here um, 80 years ago, um, where the border, even in, 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 the midst of, um, in the midst of the Second World War, appears both, or perhaps because of it, its appearance in the midst of the Second World War, becomes both strange and prosaic. It carries this illicit appeal, a transgressive attraction of some kind, the, the reference to Buchan, um, Conjures Hitchcock's film of the 39 Steps seven years earlier, which features a key scene on a train, of course. But then as the script continues, that aspect is, is downplayed. Um, and Johnson tells us that the passport checks were very quiet and efficient and, and passed off with no, um, with no drama. And the script ends very abruptly with his arrival in Amiens Street Station, as it then was. Um, and he walks out to find horse-drawn cabs with drivers cracking their whips for fares. And this strange, almost unique journey is over at last. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Guy. That was wonderful. And uh, now we're going to go directly to uh, Professor Eve Patton. Thank you very much, Kieran, and uh, good morning, everyone. I, I'm going to pick up on uh, where my colleagues have got to by thinking a bit more about cultural and, and literary responses to partition and uh, to the Irish border. Um, 
if uh, any of you read last Saturday's Irish Times, you'll have seen Fintan O'Toole's piece and his suggestion that Irish partition can be viewed either as a realist drama or as a tragedy. Uh, but the genre that he didn't mention uh, is comedy. Uh, and this probably not surprising given that we uh, think of partition as part of a very traumatic history. Um, but uh, I want to turn to comedy in uh, my discussion of this topic. Guy has already mentioned the comic anecdotes that uh, attend uh, the descriptions of smuggling across the border. Uh, and one of the revelations that was most interesting for me from Peter Leary's recent book on the history of the Irish border, Unapproved Roots, was how often it showed that the border has functioned as a site of play or, or comedy or confusions of identity. Uh, so I want to think a little bit about that uh, in terms not only of Irish culture, but specifically in relation to English treatments of the border and the history of partition. Of course, one of the most famous treatments of the border um, that we have in, in English writing is Spike Milligan's Pacoon. If you go to my first slide there, um, Francesca, please. Uh, Pacoon was from 1963 originally. This is the cover of the first edition. And of course, uh, Milligan's story is uh, of the Boundary Commission uh, cutting in half a small Irish village, and it shows partition as a comic absurdity in very surreal terms. Um, and I, I think the the uh, the expectation of, of Milligan to write on this subject was probably increased by the fact that, of course, his father was Irish. He was born in India, so he had other points of reference. But nonetheless, it's a marker of English treatments of partition for me. And I want to elaborate on this uh, sense of an English response to partition. But to think a little bit more about comedy and comedic strategies, and particularly those fundamental uh, comedy strategies of doubling and irony and mistaken or confused identity. And I also want to think, as Guy has done, about the 1940s in particular. Uh, if we look at earlier decades, and particularly the 1920s after partition, the response from English writers and, and uh, in English culture was very muted. And I think this is part of um, that response that Mo Moulton has talked about in her book on Ireland in interwar England. Uh, and, and she's shown Ireland to be subject to what she talks about as a narrative of popular forgetting after 1921. The assumption in, in popular terms was that partition had solved the Irish question uh, and that everybody could therefore forget about it. Uh, but of course, partition, the border and Ireland do remain a latent presence in an English consciousness. And I think as Guy has shown, the question of partition resurges in England in the late 30s and through the 1940s when an English nation, and I'm speaking very specifically about England in this respect, becomes preoccupied both with its own borders, the borders with Cornwall, the borders with Scotland in particular, but also those frontiers and borders that are in flux across Europe. Um, and this is something that one critic has described as a border obsession in English writing of the interwar period. It starts, of course, in the wake of what the Versailles Treaty had done and the carving up of Middle Europe 
um, in, in the wake of, of the First World War. But by the time of the late 1930s, when you have the Anschluss uh, in 1938, and then the Vienna uh, Awards of the early part of the Second World War, you again see the instability of the territories of Austria, Hungary, Romania, uh, the Czech Republic as was, and all the ethnic flux that goes on in that area. We see this as, as subject to a processing of, of territorial, ter territorial shifts and the realignments of borders and frontiers. And of course, the details of this are labyrinthine, and I'll, I'll leave them to the historians. Um, but one of the things that this discourse evolved was that nominal doubling of Ireland with places in Central Europe. So you get references in journalism of the time uh, to ideas of Bohemian Ulster, for example, or again, the Irish Sudetenland. So how does Irish partition feature in this English border obsession? And what role does comedy play? I want to look at this question by turning to the 1946 film, I See a Dark Stranger. And uh, thanks, Francesca. This is uh, um, a spy story. Uh, some of you may have seen it. Uh, it's usually referred to in terms of wartime propaganda. It's a comic thriller about Nazi spies running across neutral Ireland and how this was a threat to England. But the film in a very interesting way is topped and tailed with references to partition and the border. And these are seen in relation to British wartime perspectives. Uh, as you see, the film is written by uh, the, the duo Frank Launder and Sidney Gilliatt, very well-known British comedy screenwriting duo who worked on various wartime propaganda pieces, but they'd also worked on the uh, 1930s comedy, uh, The Lady Vanishes, and they'd later go on to, to, to make the St. Trinian's uh, films. In I See His Dark Stranger, we have Deborah Carr starring as Bridie Quilty. And in 1944, when the film picks up Bridie's story, uh, she leaves her west of Ireland village, having come of age, to travel to Dublin with the idea of recruiting for the Irish Republican Army. And to do this, she tracks down a veteran of the Easter Rising who's called Michael O'Callaghan. He's now the deputy director of Dublin's art gallery. And so if you go to the next slide, um, what the film manages to do at this point is, is show uh, Bridie's journey through Dublin in 1944 to get to the gallery. We've got a curious um, doubling because it, it actually is a journey from Houston Station down to the Hugh Lane Gallery, though in fact the scenes are shot in the National Gallery. But the opportunity of going down what is now O'Connell Street, of course, gives viewers a chance to see the sites of the rising prehistory of partition with the GPO and, of course, Nelson's Pillar still there. And then if you go to the next slide, Francesca, um, in the gallery itself, Bridie takes a walk past portraits, a sequence of portraits of all the heroes of the rising, Pierce, Connolly, and in particular, Roger Casement. And she pauses in front of Casement's portrait. Um, and this is where we get the beginnings of this, this sequence of doubling and, and ironic doubling of identity, because a convenient gallery guide introduces Casement's portrait to her by pointing out that he was knighted for the British for standing up to Belgian, uh, standing up against Belgian tyranny in Africa, hung by the British for standing up to British tyranny in Ireland. If you go to the next slide, please, Francesca. When Bridie meets with um, O'Callaghan uh, in this scene, and in fact, in, in where, where they meet, they're standing directly in front of the portrait of Pierce himself. 
Uh, and this is a very interesting conversation because O'Callaghan is astonished at Bridie's request that she wants to join the IRA and carefully uh, mansplains to her uh, that there is now a treaty with England, that things are now settled in Ireland by constitutional means. And when Bridie asks, well, what about partition? He replies, and I quote directly from the film, when the two countries, England and Ireland, sit down to discuss things on a friendly basis, partition won't last very long. Uh, I'm absolutely astonished that this, <laughs> this scene, let alone much of this film, got through the, the censors at the time. I'm not going to labor the spy plot, but uh, Bridie's involvement with the fifth columnists in England eventually brings her and the romantic lead, who's a British military officer played by Trevor Howard, back to Ireland. They're now on the run with uh, the fifth columnists and their boat sails into the coast of Ireland at County Louth. And at this point in the film, a map of the customs border appears on screen. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen the Irish border in popular cinema. If you have a look at the next slide, um, this is um, from uh, a really dreadful film called Oh, Mr. Porter from 1937, where Will Hay stars as a railway porter who's going to be sent to Buggles Kelly, a small Irish border village. And of course, the, in order to find out where this village is, they show a map fairly on in the film. And uh, you can see, I think, just about realize that this is a very inaccurate map, even for 1937. Uh, the border goes right down through Enniskillen and manages to cut off all of uh, Western Fermanagh. Um, but of course, um, what happens when we show a map, particularly in, in films of this kind, is that the map is a kind of metafiction. It's not to show you where you are, it's to reinforce to you that you have no idea where you are and you're therefore part of the, the comic confusion of the characters themselves. Now, interestingly, Mr. Porter was written by Frank Launder, one of our uh, screenwriting duo, and it pioneers the, the slapstick format that I think Guy began to touch on talking about border smuggling, where we get this combination of border cross-border smuggling, IRA activity, and endless English comic confusion all compounded. And these things are going to be brought out again in the later film, I See a Dark Stranger. If you can just take me to the next uh, slide, please, Francesca. Now you'll see in, in the later film, I See a Dark Stranger, we're again going to see the border, but this time uh, it's much improved. But I think it does again register the idea, which would have been uh, something novel in many respects to this audience, uh, of one country that carries two identities at once. And it fits into the comic sequencing of the film throughout, where all the protagonists, all the identities that we register are doubled or false. Everybody at some point in the film impersonates somebody else. And crucially in the film, territory is also shown to have a double identity. The film opens with the depiction of a French town but curiously, the French town is in the Isle of Man. And it's later explained, we come to understand, that the French town has been built as a rehearsal site for the D-Day landings. But this theme and the way the border map is used in, in I See a Dark Stranger suggests very much the idea of an island that is based on the same kind of territorial doubling. It can be understood only through strategies of comedy and play and irony. And this continues when our protagonists get uh, caught up with smugglers who are trying to go across the border. Um, if you just show the next slide, 
And there's a long comic scene, a slapstick scene at the border where the smugglers are trying to cross disguised as a funeral procession. Uh, and you can see as well, I mean, if you watch the film, it's clearly, I think, that they're in County Wicklow, but it's doubling as, as the, uh, the border counties. Um, and then in the film's denouement, the two lovers, now lovers, uh, think that they have uh, stayed on the free state side of the border, but in fact, they've crossed into Northern Ireland. And they don't realize this. They only come to understand it when they take refuge in a pub. And if you go to the next, the final slide, Francesca, the, uh, in the pub, they order drinks and it suddenly occurs to them that they're paying double the amount for the drinks. And this is a clue to them that in fact, by accident, they've crossed into Northern Ireland and that therefore they are subject to uh, British military punishment and retribution. So quickly with another great slapstick scene involving the smugglers, they have to again, make their way back to the Southern side of the border. Now, obviously, uh, I think it's very unwise to overread a popular film noirish comedy like I See a Dark Stranger. Uh, but for me, the film does indicate something of what Guy was talking about, uh, uh, that Irish partition became inextricable from English wartime perspectives and that wider European context that I was talking about. And that at this point, it was manageable um, the idea of the border and of partitions and frontiers were manageable if they were developed through comic strategies and structures. There is a didactic element at play uh, that Ireland is shown not as an example of political settlement. In other words, it's not shown as finished business. Rather, it's an example of international political process. It teaches its audience that there is a kind of necessary doublethink at play across Europe at this time, um, a state of mind that has to suspend disbelief and accept that settlements are inherently contingent, sometimes even ludicrous. And I'm using that word obviously with its attention, its, 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 its roots in idea of play. Um, and, and hence, I think this idea of identities as being provisional and interim settlements or arrangements, which of course echoes O'Callaghan's earlier very loaded statement that partition won't last very long. So this curiosity uh, of uh, I See a Dark Stranger, the curious film that it is, is part of the larger conversation that both Stephen and Guy have touched on about the way in which Irish partition was both modeled on other partitions and became in turn a model for frontiers and settlements elsewhere, but in a very, very complex and contingent form. Uh, and it's part of this conversation, I think, that we will be having about how Ireland's partition was leveraged by English writers and within English culture to respond to the flux of a wider European landscape. Uh, and in order to help navigate the contingency or, or the provisionality of European identities in the 1940s in particular. But the film also raises the question of, of literary genre with which I began. And I think it obliges us to ask why so many Irish historical questions are managed and manageable through devices of slapstick, uh, caricature, irony and, and comedy in that tradition that goes up to where I started and to Spike Milligan's wonderful novel, Cocoon. Thank you, I'll hand back to Kieran. Thanks very much, Eve. Um, and thanks to all uh, three speakers for giving us a, a really, really interesting uh, tour around the legacies, cultural and, liter and liter literary and on the screen um, after partition.
We have uh, lots of questions coming in from our audience, and I'd encourage the, the rest of you um, on our on our session today to please do type them into the chat box. We'll get to as many as we can. One of the liberating things about this discussion is that I think there's a feeling uh, at the moment that historians and political scientists have to some extent sort of dominated the conversation around the centenary of the partition. And of course, historians, and I, I'm one myself, um, are good at some things and not good at others as are political scientists. And the conversation tends to end up in the legalistic uh, and technical and structural very quickly when historians and political scientists talk. One of the great things about listening to you talk us through partition was that it really got us closer to the sort of partition of the mind and the partition of our imagination uh, and your interplay as three speakers between the spatial giving us the idea of the sort of maps, you know, imagined um, traditions and maps of, of, of Ulster um, and of the North and of partition. Uh, it really helps us kind of get to that point. And um, one of the other things, and I'll, I'll stop summarizing in a moment that I really enjoyed was uh, the appearance of both the empire and of England at the border. We often talk in terms of North and South, and we often talk about partition as if it was an island story. When, as you've just shown us, I think really clearly, Europe was at the border and at the frontier at the moment of its creation and in the decades afterwards, um, as was the empire. And so with the, that, I'm going to turn to, to Stephen for, for my first kind of direct question. You, you mentioned uh, the appearance of, of Northern Ireland and Ulster and, and the sort of newly invented um, tradition at the Imperial Exhibition in 1924. What way do you see the empire interacting with the creation of uh, of, of the north of Ireland and, and uh, the partition, how does the empire sustain it or challenge those early uh, narratives about, about partition and, and the new border? Thanks very much, uh, Kieran. Well, it's an interesting question and has like, I think two aspects to it. There is like obviously an ongoing debate um, and has been for quite some time about whether or not, um, you know, Ulster is a colony, right? So someone like Ernest Hamilton, for example, in the very first sentence of his The Soul of Ulster says, the ethics of the Ulster question is bound up in the general ethics of colonization and explicitly cherishes the idea of colonization. And this is something which, maybe not why, by using that word in particular, like uh, colonists, um, a lot of the kind of um, creation of an Ulster auto, auto stereotype is bound up in ideas of um, them kind of building America and building, and building America almost in the image of Ulster. So you, you see this like running throughout like most of the rhetoric of the time, but also in terms of the empire, which at the time had been, um, you know, really turned into a marketing opportunity, both in the free state and in the north. What you find is that the empire is foregrounded as this business opportunity. And of course, economic questions were at the front and center of part of the reason why uh, Ulster in particular became a vicious or a vociferous, sorry, proponent of partition. So, the empire identity is really massively cherished, um, uh, certainly at, at this time. And you don't need to look too far than look at, say, the building of Stormont, which has Britannia on its very top, to see that like empire is such a, an important part. Um, but also that a lot of the links that they were making with were established links through imperial connections, um, such as through South Africa and through Australia. And that empire exhibition in particular, which I think is one of the most fascinating parts of like kind of popular sort of cultural history um, in the 1920s and particularly in view of, you know, this potential festival of Brexit that might not happen. Um, what's really interesting about this is that the empire is seen as a shop window, but also really, really importantly, 
um, it's it, it, that uh, the um, the government made sure that they were housed within uh, UK government kind of buildings. So it offers like a spatial opportunity to place Ulster, even in terms of like the, the visual culture of it within a kind of a very kind of eclectic vision of empire at the same time. So, so much to that, I think, is, is really important. That's something I think we really need to start talking about really in the next couple of years. Absolutely. And, and just sort of building on that for a moment, um, I'm going to go to the audience questions in just a moment. But Guy, I was really taking you know, the idea of Dennis Johnson sort of addressing a public, trying to focus in on three different sort of constituencies and also trying to entice um, people south of the border into the war effort, which, which seemed to be a fairly explicit motive of what he was doing. Uh, what parts in, in the wartime kind of discourses that you, you've been studying, what part does the empire play? I mean, people tend to forget, of course, that the south of Ireland is, is deeply integrated into the, the empire right up until 1949 as well. Is the empire at that stage of the discourse several decades after partition, you know, has it receded from some of the sort of emotive language being used or is it still present? I'm just going to ask you to unmute yourself, guys. Sorry. Um, that's a really interesting question. Um, with, in my day job, I spend most of my time at the moment thinking about British wartime propaganda, um, where the empire is both sort of present and absent. So Britain is part of this empire, but also um, rhetorically, obviously, we're used to this idea of, you know, the island alone, um, a, a formulation, of course, which which avoids um, which avoids thinking about Ireland. Um, I think um, you raise the question of audience. One thing I didn't mention in the talk is um, there's a lot of kind of transmissions back and forward. I think in this um, in, in this particular broadcast. Um, I think, you know, I, I, I mentioned his covert brief of trying to sort of um, do sort of PR on behalf of Britain in Ireland. But I think he's also, um, I think he admits this himself, actually, that he's also sort of representing Ireland to Britain, um, kind of imagining quite a hostile um, audience. Um, lots of people were very hostile to neutrality. Um, immediately before the war, obviously, there was um, a bombing campaign in, in Britain, which um, also kind of gave rise to, to popular hostilities. Um, so I, th I think um, he, he's, he's speaking to multiple audiences, probably about four audiences at once, in fact. Um, yeah, I, that doesn't answer your question about the empire at all, actually. I can't, I can't think of how to answer that, sorry. No, it's okay. It's, it's, it's not an easy one to answer, and I think we'll be arguing about it for, for much longer. I want to roll together a question from, from Peter Duffy and from Angus Mitchell. And, and in some ways, they're, they're talking about inevitability. And I'm interested in both ends of the spectrum of this sort of language of inevitability of, of partition, that it has a prehistory, uh, as Angus's question uh, sort of indicates uh, there's also a prehistory of a contestation of its inevitability from a nationalist perspective. You know, there's a history of people working against the idea of a border. And so I'm, I'm going to begin backwards, Eve, with you, because one of the clips from your film 
uh, sort of talked about the inevitability of its, you know, uh, of its remaining, but also another one of your of your examples talked about the inevitability of partition ending, you know, as soon as a reasonable conversation could be had between England and Ireland. Um, we're probably still waiting for that reasonable conversation. But I, I wanted to begin with that sort of inevitability. By the time of the of the cultural sort of products and outputs that you're analyzing, what is inevitable about partition at that stage? Is it its decline or is it its, its continuance? I think this is, uh, it's absolutely key, Kieran, to think about it in, in a much longer framework of uncertainty, because uh, obviously we know from the negotiations about partition at the time in, in 1921 that it was surrounded with ambiguity, uncertainty, provisionality. Uh, would this be a situation and an arrangement which would hold? And, and very few people thought it would hold for as long as it has. Um, but I think that the problem was that people firstly were confused by the solution. Uh, and secondly, it took a long time for that arrangement to filter into a wider consciousness. Um, and I think Stephen's absolutely right. You know, you have the weaponizing of the map, but it took a long time before even the maps were settled. And if you look at the, part, the history of partition in terms not of what happened in legislation, but of what happened in the dissemination of information, publishing history, very interesting here, you'll see that it wasn't until the 1930s that you get things like Dorothy McArdle's uh, history of the Irish Republic and of Ireland and the history of partition from 1937 being picked up by mainstream publishers like Victor Gollans in Britain and, and really putting the whole story out to a wider audience. Uh, so I think that this, this question of partition somehow being finished in 1921 or 1924 or even 1925 is just ludicrous. We have to see it over a much longer period and indeed right up to when it resurfaces again, long after, of course, the 1940s, the 1970s, when again, the border because of the troubles is, is a focus, not only in Ireland, but, but elsewhere. And I think that this touches on, you know, the, 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 the theme that all of us have raised, which is the, the way in which partition in Ireland was a model for partitions elsewhere. And of course, the debates that began to happen around the Palestine mandate uh, in the late 1940s, or again, around Indian partition, make it resurface and, and make it again part of the public consciousness across uh, the empire and other territories. Um, so it's, it's a long-term story. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think we, we really got a sense of that across all three contributions. Stephen, Roshan Kennedy has a, a, a question that really follows on quite neatly from this, this idea of inevitability and the prehistory of partition and so on. But she's really interested at that moment of transformation or rupture that you posited at the end of your of your contribution, this idea, in some ways that culture itself was profoundly changed by partition or the fact of partition. And what she's asking is, can you say something more about this with regard to later manifestations of culture, North and South? How do we see those two diverge or do we see them diverge? Or are we overstating that divergence? Uh, okay, I think we are overstating that divergence. And I think it does direct, directly, directly, sorry, to the um, idea of inevitability and the idea that kind of partition was a reflection of cultural um, difference, right? So just in later manifestations of culture, particularly in unionist ones, this map is continually kind of um, uh, taken up as a point of representation. I mean, if you look, for example, at the most recent uh, commissioning by the Northern Parliament, it was a map of the six counties uh, on a kind of plinth, a statue of it. 
which was in itself um, rejected, of course, by, by nationalists. And, uh, and this caused some, some sort of furore. So a lot of like, actually the kind of, you know, the ephemera or what was maybe seen at the time is the ephemera partition of mapping becomes like a central like part of the unionist imaginary, but also, you know, some of the very, I think um, one of the questions is talking about how certain people have got left out of the story, like uh, Roger Casement, et cetera, all these kind of like uh, Protestant nationalist figures from the North. What happens is there's a kind of like way of reading Southern sort of culture as well, which really is ignorant quite a lot of like, you know, the, the way in which like this was actually partitioned in its own way um, uh, from, the, uh, from, from the kind of more unified sort of vision of cultures in, uh, before them. And I think, I mean, there's so many examples of this. Brushin uh, probably, I think, would know about this one, but the, the one about the free state in the Chicago World Exhibition, only choosing, um, uh, I think, uh, only choosing uh, artworks which were relevant to uh, the 26 counties and refusing anything that had six county interest. So um, William Connor, for example, was rejected uh, because he, I think the, the painting that I showed, the launch, was rejected because it had a Union Jack in it and because it was um, an image of Belfast, even in the kind of marketing of art by the state or and the kind of uh, bringing over artwork to an international audience, the idea of Ireland was being very clearly territorialized in that way. And there's so many other examples as, as well. Um, and I think, I, I think one of the most succinct examples um, in terms of an individual writer and, or artist about this is Seamus Heaney talking in Stepping Stones about when he was in his primary school. And I don't know if you could see the um, Boy Scouts holding the kind of uh, the sign saying Ulster, but there's something really interesting about the impact of, of children in particular who grew up in the, the, in the Northern state because Heaney talks about in his Anna Horace primary school, there being this map on the wall and there's been this thick sort of red selvage uh, between north and south on the map and how this was, according to him, meant to imprint a sort of um, six county identity from the start. So whether people were resisting this or people were, you know, um, were promoting it, this had like, I think, a profound impact, particularly on the cultural production north of the border. Right. I have a question in here from um, Alexander Coupe, which I think is really interesting. And, and it sort of, it, it follows on for something we've touched on, but I, I'd like to kind of go back to, in particular, even Guy on this. Uh, which is the idea of culture as underwriting partition. Um, and so what Alexander is asking is, I'm wondering how contemporaneous debates around the role of the state or in funding the arts um, influence the capacity of artists to think critically about partition. And I suppose I'm particularly interested, Guy, you know, in the, in the BBC uh, as, a, as a sort of a vector for both Irish and uh, British artists in this period, a major funder of the arts and so on. And, and we're talking about how the states are really trying to control um, or certainly influence um, uh, culture through art. A, a friend of mine who works in the art world refers to this as the phenomenon of lubrikunst, the idea of a sort of lubrication um, of, of commemoration and, and art through, through, uh, through artists and their, their economic manipulation in a way. So uh, to begin with you, Guy, but then to turn to you, Eve, as well, you know, to what extent does the state and does the funding kind of... Um, landscape uh, really profoundly affect what kind of cultural outputs we're seeing in the periods you're, you're interested in. Thanks. Yeah, I think um, the BBC is quite an interesting um, phenomenon in that um, it's founded in 1922. So it's just, it comes just after partition. So it never has to be carved up um, in the same way as other institutions did. It kind of arrives at the same time. Um, I don't know too much about the interwar um, 
history. But um, during the war, they, they, it's, it's a very kind of awkward relationship. Um, it's a much more awkward relationship between the BBC and BBC Northern Ireland in many ways than it is between BBC and Radio Erin. Certainly in um, Johnston's, um, Johnston's account, he, he used the Radio Erin studios a lot, um, but uh, was effectively banned, I think, from using um, the, the studios in Belfast, which were really hostile to his work. Um, and the BBC during the war are very keen to kind of appeal to Irish listeners, um, but find those plans, I think, continually um, shot down or contorted by the requirements of, of BBC Northern Ireland, which was in the hands, um, Stephen would probably be able to talk about this um, as, as well, I should think, about um, in, in the hands of very kind of dogmatic um, bureaucrats who who were not um, not keen on those those plans at all. Um, but then, yeah, it's 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 a, it's a it's an awkward it's a very awkward situation that I think arises um, fr from that. Um, that it, it, the similar genesis point in 1922 is is it complicates things. I think, yeah. I, I just add to that, Kieran. I think one of the, the interesting questions for me around uh, art and culture and the production of, of art and culture is at what point does the border take on its own separate cultural identity and become a kind of third space within the island? So we have Northern Ireland, we have the Republic of Ireland, and then we have this curious thing called a border identity. So we have artists who either self-designate or are designated as border artists. And increasingly, I see certain writers talked about as border writers. So Pat McCabe, for example, you know, and, and other writers, even John McGahan, who are perhaps Cavan, Monaghan, uh, or on the other side, Fermanagh writers, are talked about as border writers. Now, is this something that is manufactured by funding bodies to uh, make sure that, that funds are appropriately and politically distributed? Or is it a genuine identity that we need to think about that the border has created a kind of liminal zone, almost freakish in some regards, but where things are different? Uh, and I, I puzzle around that question myself because I'm not sure what the answer is. Just as an addendum, there's a really interesting question in from Jane, but also a couple of people have mentioned this about Seamus Heaney in the chat. And Heaney's almost a, an example of, of a, a cultural figure that transcends or is bigger than the border, is 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 a border, but is also a, a, a poet identified with many people outside of that region and so on. Is that how you see the place of Heaney? Just, I mean, I, I don't, that's an unfair question, Eve, but if you want to briefly comment on it. I, I would go straight to Heaney and Stephen's already mentioned where Heaney talks most specifically about the border, which and growing up with a border in the interviews uh, with Dennis O'Driscoll um, in Stepping Stones. Uh, but for me, the interesting Heaney poems on the border are the, the great poem, The Republic of, from the Republic of Conscience. That psychological experience of crossing a frontier and all the attendant guilts, responsibilities, identity crises that go with that. And it's a really good example of where the Irish border is non-specific, but it's mapped onto what Heaney was recognizing at the time as the borders of Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, the poem is really sparked by the interest that was growing in Heaney in what was happening across Eastern Europe, where, of course, after uh, 89, borders fell, but in turn, 
many other frontiers and, and uh, uh, ethnic and, and racial divisions were exposed. And the huge crisis around that idea of what a border means, uh, I think was something that Heaney himself perhaps only completely understood as a mature poet when he made that connection. Absolutely. And again, a question from Hugh O'Donnell, which I'm, I'm going to answer myself, uh, which is, is it true that the border in Ireland is now the oldest land border in Europe? No, I think I can I can say with, with a, a deal of confidence. I think there are land borders in Europe from the 13th century, which are still more or less in situ. Uh, so it's really probably one of the newer ones. Uh, but but it's an interesting and perhaps mischievous question. I have another question here from, from Mark Lusby, uh, which I'll direct to Stephen, in fact, which is... Um, a sort of a question that he has about whether there's any evidence uh, during World War One, or, or I suppose either side of it, we might stretch it out, of official attempts to reach out to people and areas within Northern Ireland who are not seen as, as loyal. So, you know, what attempts are being made, if you like, from uh, the British side to, to connect to people who are not seen as, as loyal within in Northern Ireland? And I'm also feel free, the other panellists, to join in on this as well. I do think with regards to World War II, I think uh, we've got Guy here who would certainly be the be the person to ask that. I think the fact that uh, James McGuinness is on his cover of his book might also speak to some of that. Um, before or during that, I mean, the kind of construction of this kind of um, partisan state for a, part, uh, for a partisan part, or partisan parliament for partisan people is happening in this period, certainly from the, the kind of Ulster Unionist side. Um, in terms of the British side, there are quite a few Labour MPs who make, a, you know, really serious attempts to uh, argue the case for partition ending. And I can't, their, their names aren't, aren't to hand at the minute, but what you see is quite a significant amount of British MPs really trying to solve the problem of Ireland and reach out, um, not if, maybe also from a unionist perspective, I'm particularly interested in the nationalist one, reach out and kind of start critiquing partition um, just in terms of like the standard kind of how, uh, how the kind of like minority have been treated. But I think I would know far more about uh, World War II on that than I would. Guy, please, if you'd like to comment, please do. On what specifically? Uh, just the idea of, of attempts to reach the, the population in the North seen as disloyal. So I suppose returning to your sort of propaganda um, piece, really. Um, I'm not aware of wartime propaganda aimed at the North specifically. I mean, you can look at the work of BBC Northern Ireland um, you can look at things the Ministry of Information um, were doing at the time, but I can't think of anything. I can't think of anything aimed at kind of disloyal communities. No, that's a fascinating question. Yeah, maybe it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't a constituency that offered any potential. Uh, so, a question from Brendan, which I think Stephen and Eve might certainly uh, be interested in, in in speaking to. What research, if any, has been completed on the psychological impact of partition on the nationalist population in the North in the immediate aftermath of partition and the failure of the Boundary Commission in 1925? So stretching us up to the 20s and into the 30s, how does the psychological impact of partition be begin to be reflected in literature uh, written by Northern authors through plays, short stories, novels? Um, so, uh, Stephen, again, I'll begin with you and I'll go to Eve because I know you have a, a long-standing interest in, in, in that. Uh, yes, this is actually uh, a quite a long-standing interest of mine. Uh, psychological impact is a really, really important way to put it, um, and particularly because we're talking about, about Eve talking about this idea of a third um, kind of uh, identity of the borderlands. What you find in 1925, particularly after not so much the Boundary Commission but the Tripartite Agreement, 
which kind of is the real kind of thing that happens that frames um, the, the or kind of a copper fastens the settlement. What you find actually is a bunch of um, border nationalists such as Cahir Healy writing a manifesto, a border nationalist manifesto in uh, Anfoblach, in which they say we have been thrown as unceremoniously to the wolves as if we were people distinct from the 26 counties. What you have in Belfast instead is uh, in the Irish news and the sort of TJ McCarthy um, this kind of resignation to their fate from the kind of 1920s onwards. So what you actually find is that there's quite a sort of um, complex relationship between certainly Belfast and the borderlands, but that these are all now grouped in to a different, uh, or sorry, to a, to a, a homogenous seemingly uh, a unit, certainly by both states in that they are, you know, abandoned by, by, the, by the free state and then abandoned really by the, the northern state, although people might say they didn't, um, of course, as well, uh, you know, enter the parliament. So what's the psychological impact of this? Well, you don't really find like that much immediate psychological impact of this in terms of Northern nationalists. The really the first um, book to really mention this as far as I can find, please tell me anyone if you find another one, is um, is uh, uh, Michael McCloverty's Call My Brother Back. But you find kind of elements of this, I think, um, conservative culture that emerges as far up to like the, the novels like Brian Moore and various people afterwards as well. I'm just, I mean, this is probably just a gratuitous mention of this, but as a psychological um, impact, what I think is really interesting is how devotional cultures of Catholicism and particularly suffering, uh, and we think about, say, uh, Brian Moore's The Lonely Passion of Judith Hearn, become a kind of metaphor for the kind of position of Nazis in the six counties. Um, and this is all the more kind of uh, sort of interesting to me anyway, because W.T. Cosgrave, as a councillor in 1920, when he was informed about the Belfast pogroms and the kind of um, the expulsion of workers in the shipyard said that he thought these people were prepared to stand their ground and face their Gethsemane. So in terms of psychological impact, that idea of like suffering and suffering piously is essentially a, a weight that is carried through even to Heaney in Station Island, for example, when he talks about how he hates how, how much, I hate how much, um, uh, I hate how much he, he comes into his place. It's where he was born. It's everything that makes him fitable and unforthcoming. But I'll, I'll shut up now because I'll, I'll just go on forever about this. So. Oh, that, that was wonderful. Thank you, Stephen. Eve, uh, just a final thought before I bring the session to a close. Well, I know we're, we're running out of time, but I think uh, one of the things that, that Stephen's work has brought out so brilliantly on this is also a question that we won't have time to talk about, but it's about how much of a border identity and the trauma of the border is a question that, that affects rural communities perhaps a lot more than it has done urban communities because of the geography of the border. So I think there are other psychological uh, questions that are attendant upon what you've asked. Uh, and it's something that uh, I, I look forward to discussing a lot more um, when Stephen's book comes out. Wonderful. Well, so uh, we're going to draw to a close because we're, we're out of time and, and I want to thank the audience for their really perceptive and interesting questions, uh, which uh, I hope we got to most of them. Apologies to any that we, we didn't get to. Um, so I want to also thank our, uh, our brilliant hub events team, uh, Francesca, Aoife, Emily, Katrina, who's on this call as well. Uh, and of course, to applaud on your behalf on Zoom, uh, our three really excellent speakers for their contributions and for their answers in Q&A. Uh, just to flag up two things before you leave us, um, I want uh, to uh, say that please do join us for the second half of today's symposium. It begins at 1.30pm. It's going to be chaired by Professor Cheryl Lauther, and it focuses on the political and social legacies of partition as a companion piece to our sort of meditation on the cultural and literary legacies 
of partition this morning. In between, uh, just in case you uh, thought you could escape, especially cultural outputs related to partition uh, and, and the broader questions, you may, during the interval, want to uh, watch the video artwork, A Line Was Drawn by our future artist in residence here at Trinity Longroom Hub, Mairead McLean, who we're really excited about working with uh, over the next while. You'll find the link to that in the email in invitation that came out to you earlier today for this event this morning. So please do take a look at that. The link is valid until the 10th of May and I see Francesca has popped it in the chat. But for now, thank you so much for joining us this morning and thank you to everybody uh, that contributed to the session. Bye-bye. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.